0: Good evening everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening and we are going to be looking back on the year 2020 and the tornadoes that affected North and South Carolina and tonight's focus is on South Carolina. Uh, in fact, South Carolina second most tornadoes registered in 2020 was 61 and if you remember there was a big outbreak in April and that's what we're going to talk about tonight with John Q from the National Weather Service in Columbia, South Carolina. We're happy to have John back with us, and uh, we're just going to look back at this event and um, a lot of um, a lot of oddities with this event. This, is, if you remember, an EF four. Uh, this happened during COVID times, and this was also happening during the Easter holiday. So. A lot going on for a pretty big uh, outbreak of tornadoes in the state of South Carolina. So looking forward to that. John, welcome back to the show. We're uh, happy to have you. I know you've been on here a few times. So uh, let's get started. Uh, We were talking about just the activity, the, the severe weather activity um, last year in, in the year 2020 with the southeast and you know the tornadoes started in January in the upstate. We had tornadoes in February I believe there in portions of the Midlands and then we had this big event in April. So John it was a busy year for you all last year covering uh, tornadoes and severe weather outbreaks.
1: Yeah it absolutely was. Well first thanks for having me on again it's always great to, to be speaking with all of you um, yeah, 2020 turned out to be a real big severe weather uh, year for us I and mean, really for us it started probably back in January uh, when we had a tornado uh, pretty much strike North Central High School in Kershaw County, uh, it was only on the ground for uh, less than two minutes, we asked me probably about a minute and a half, produced EF3 damage and pretty much destroyed the school. Um, so we started off the year on a, on a bad note there and obviously we went to April and we had a real big outbreak. Um, And like you said, the number of tornadoes for the whole year between the active typical spring severe weather season and then the tropical induced tornadoes later on in the year really produced a lot of tornadoes for us here in South Carolina.
0: And so we're going to focus on this April outbreak and this was happening near the Easter holiday. Uh, April kind of an uptick anyway, like you said, in severe weather season, but it was also during the COVID time. So uh, this was kind of the the, the height of, you know, COVID just now affecting the country a lot of people started doing remote work. So before we kind of get into the storm setup, what was it like in the, uh, in the weather office there in Columbia with all these restrictions and you're seeing the potential of uh, some pretty nasty weather to affect uh, the state? Sure. Yeah.
1: That's a really good point for us. I mean, we were just kind of getting used to the COVID environment. Um, you know, the weather service was limiting our uh, capacity to fill the office. Essentially most of the time we just had two people in the office and um Uh, We were able to staff up for the event, um, but maybe not as much so as we normally would have. Um, If it wasn't, you know, for COVID, um, we had to have extra restrictions in place. We were trying to distance each other, you know, from each other as much as we could. Um, So that, um, that proved challenging, Uh, and I think later on we'll get into the survey process, but even doing the surveys, we had a lot of limitations um, due to COVID. Um, So it was certainly a challenge, but, you know, it was something, it was an event we saw uh, as a potential several days ahead of time. So at least we are able to get plans in place and try to come up with, um, you know, our strategy for dealing with it. Um, You you know, I think considering we just got into the whole COVID environment and it was a really big outbreak for us, I think things went very well. Um, It was unusual, as we'll get into, um, just for the, the sheer number of tornadoes, the number of strong tornadoes. Uh, that we had. The time of the day was just very unusual to have tornadoes early morning like that for us. Um, So just a lot of factors that played into this. And the the whole thing was kind of just unusual. Um, You know, just the way we had to prepare for this, Um, the coordination that we had to do, our partners were kind of all tied up as well dealing with, you know, COVID on their end, emergency managers and everyone else. And Making sure people were paying attention. I mean, in the news, you know, was was kind of COVID, and it was a, the web situation getting the airtime it needs? And then certainly after, it's getting out of the community, and everyone's kind of on edge still from that. So, uh, certainly had a lot of challenges with it, but I think we, we did pretty good in overcoming most of those.
2: John, I got a question for you. A lot of folks, they kind of they don't really understand the setup for tornadoes. Like we we know a couple of days out, three days out. Hey, look, we're going to have a real situation here. What what creates the setup for this kind of activity, this severe activity that we saw that day?
1: Sure. That day was really, we had almost all the right ingredients in place. Um, you know, we had a, a lot of instability. Um, there was um, a, a lot of wind shear. Um, and Actually, I'll say there was a lot of instability. It was enough instability, given all the wind shear that we had. We had just a, a very large amount of wind shear in the atmosphere. So that's just really... Increasing winds with height and, and different directions really kind of help get the storms organized and increase the potential for tornadoes. And once you really high, have high, sh- high shear like that, all it takes is just a little bit of instability to get the storms going and, and you end up with a big outbreak like we saw. We had um, very high moisture um, uh, that, that day in particular um, and, and a lot of the parameters that we look at for um, supercell storms and for significant tornadoes were all just off the charts. You know, when you looked, uh, you know, a few hours leading up to the event, it, it's numbers that we typically don't see here in the Carolinas. And that was an indication to us as we were getting real close to the event developing that we were you know, potentially in for, you know, a, a big outbreak.
3: Well, John, you certainly have a lot of experience at the National Weather Service. Uh, in that time, I'm sure you've seen nocturnal tornadoes before. Have you ever seen nocturnal tornadoes in the flurry of violence that uh, unfolded? In South Carolina. Have you
1: ever seen that before? No, I've seen some pretty large outbreaks. Um, most of the time, our bigger outbreaks tend to be in the afternoon and evening. It's the most climatological favorable time for tornadoes here. You know, certainly there have been some overnight or the early morning hours, but never to the scale like we saw with this event to have, you know, the sheer number of EF2 and EF3 tornadoes. I mean, we had five EF3 tornadoes and two EF2 tornadoes all within a real short span of each other, which is just pretty remarkable for us here. And that's just in central South Carolina. We forecast for central South Carolina and east central Georgia, not counting what happened in other parts of the state. You know, it started about 5 a.m., ended just before 7 a.m., so this two-hour span, we, we pronounced all those tornadoes. Um, we had four tornadoes on the ground simultaneously at about 5.51 a.m., so to think four tornadoes all in a pretty you know, small area in consideration. It wasn't, you know, widespread across all of Central South Carolina. A lot of it was limited down to the, um, you know, uh, the CSRA and, and parts of the Eastern Midlands for us. And, you know, two of those are very long track tornadoes. So just really an unusual event for us.
0: So John, uh, quick question here. We, uh, we know we've been able to interview TV friends who have talked about covering multiple tornadoes on air, but how do you all cover multiple tornadoes on the ground in the weather office and then by the way you're only two people in the office i mean goodness that that had to be difficult how did how was you able to uh, to do that
1: yeah so i uh, probably spoken incorrectly. we were staffed up more uh, typical staffing was supposed to be two at all times unless we had a, a a weather need to have extra people in so we did have people in the office i'm probably thinking we had Maybe six of us in there for that where maybe we typically like to have more like eight or ten of us in there um, so um, You know, we had people assisting us from home the best they could as well But it was uh, kind of getting adjusted to that uh, was certainly a factor, but you know, it, it's very stressful um, You know when you have multiple tornadoes in multiple areas You need to keep an eye on it's really challenging for the radar operator and we essentially have to have multiple people with eyes on things to make sure something's not missed and You know, this wasn't an event where it was just all pure supercells. There were some stuff that went supercellular, but it was, you know, a QLCS or a line of of storms kind of as it moved in. And and with that, within that, you had some of those embedded supercells. So things kind of spin up a little bit quicker and it's a little bit tougher environment to to warn on. Um, You know, we were fortunate to have a really uh, experienced uh, radar operator kind of taking the lead that day. Um, and a lot of other good people uh, in the office to, you know, kind of help you know, get reports, uh, message what's going on out to our partners and, and the public um, and keep overall situational awareness. So, um, you know, the radar technology has really come a long way, too. We have the benefit of these frequent radar scans now where, you know, you go back 10 years ago or so before we had dual pole radar and, and some of this other stuff. And it might take every six minutes or so to get a new you know a new a new scan at the lowest elevation angle. Now we're able to get those every two or three minutes. Um, so the, the speed at which the data is coming in is a lot faster and it's great because we could see a lot more but it's also challenging when you're working the radar now because you're just almost getting overwhelmed with data as it comes in especially an event like this where you've got many tornadoes on the ground and you're trying to warn for them. Um, this was a case where we knew these tornadoes were. We're producing damage. We saw the debris ball. We knew that debris was being lofted up into the atmosphere from these tornadoes. So uh, it's trying to get that messaging out in the warnings, trying to coordinate and let our emergency management partners know what's going on. Uh, that all certainly adds to the, uh, to the stress of things.
0: Well, you were talking about a little bit, uh, John, about the radar technology and we've got some images here we can share, but uh, for those who I know a lot of people kind of see the, uh, the radar images on their apps or on TV, uh, but we have uh, other uh, radar elements that allow us to see what's going on in, in the atmosphere and a correlation coefficient, one of those. And we can actually see uh, sometimes debris lofted into the sky from these tornadoes. Can you talk a little bit about that radar technology and how you guys was utilizing it? It's nighttime. Uh, it's not like you can look out the window and see that tornado. So you were using these uh, these different tools to help uh, pinpoint what was going on on the ground.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. So we have, you know, the reflectivity is what you see when you look at your app most of the time. We're watching the local news. It's the intensity of the precipitation. Um, you can see hook echoes and indications of tornadoes on reflectivity, certainly, but You know we look at velocity images which is the winds inside of the storm really to see if there's rotation how strong it is Um, looking at the elevation that rotations out is it very deep or is it pretty shallow Um, and then like you had mentioned um, correlation coefficient is a great new tool and one of the best i think um, that we've uh, one of the new products we've seen come out since dual pole upgrade and that really enables us to see when a tornado is on the ground lifting debris up Uh, that product in particular looks for consistency essentially in um, what the radar is hitting. So if it's all raindrops, uh, you know, in showers, it's all gonna look very consistent, nothing's gonna stand out. But in the case when you have debris getting picked up, it sees there's objects of different shapes and sizes in there. And when that lines up with, um, with the velocity showing where the rotation might be and where we maybe see a hook echo or some other indication of reflectivity, that's usually a clear sign that there's a tornado producing damage. And it's very accurate. We've had times that we've seen that in remote areas and we'll call and, and, you know, ask, you know, an emergency manager or uh, someone else, you know, about the damage. And they weren't even aware of it. It happened in a real remote location. And you go out and look and, yeah, sure enough, the damage is there. So it's it's a really good tool and it allows us to give the public advance notice. People are more likely to take action. If you know there's a tornado on the ground producing damage coming towards you, than a radar that indicates one might be there, just the wording that we use, the confidence we're able to put in those products really changes the, um, you know, reaction um, uh, from what people do. And, and I, I think it's really advanced the science and our warning skill, essentially.
2: Sure. And that was going to lead me to, to a quick question here to, to tag on that. And then I'll hand it over to Evan. I think he's got PowerPoint ready, but um, radar indicated. So, you know, folks are looking at, you know, they get warnings across their phones. They're saying tornado warning, radar indicated, Tornado or versus, there is one on the ground, right? There is a debris ball. That means there has been there has been ground contact, and we know, in fact, that that's tornado has reached the ground. So maybe maybe talk about how to differentiate between the two, and and make sure that everybody takes it, all of it seriously, right? Anytime there's a warning, it's serious. So um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Shay. So every warning needs, you know, people need to react to every warning you get, but I would say not every warning is the same. So like you had mentioned, most of the time when we start seeing indication of a tornado forming, our warning is gonna say radar indicated tornado. And the hope is to get that warning out well before the tornado touches down and well before it might be five, 10 minutes here in the Carolinas. Um, so that's the idea is to look at the radar and see the tornado is starting to form. And before it touches down, have people get to their safe locations. That's why you need to react when you get any tornado warning. But once we start getting indications that we see that debris, a warning changes. We now say radar confirmed tornado. And you'll see in, in the text, it's going to say things like, this is a dangerous situa- you know, situation. Um, uh, so we, we start enhancing the wording that we put into those warnings. because Now we actually know it's there. Um, it's already on the ground, producing damage, damages a threat to life and property. And um, so that's kind of how you could read through those warnings. And finally, the, the, the highest level, if you will, warning is a tornado emergency. And That is when you have a large confirmed tornado on the ground, generally moving toward a a more populated area. You probably won't see those for very rural areas, but when, you know, it starts getting to a more populated area where it's going to be a greater threat to human life, we're going to issue a tornado emergency when we have confidence. Um, And on that day, the Charleston office issued the first ever tornado emergency in the state of South Carolina uh, for the tornado that produced EF4 damage in Hampton County. It was after that point when they knew there was a, you know, large dangerous tornado on the ground, they, uh, they issued that uh, tornado emergency for Walterboro and Colleton County. So um, that's how you could interpret the warnings. But again, everyone should be taking action whenever you're whenever you're under a tornado warning.
4: Yeah, John, you just answered one of the questions I was about to ask you: is whether or not we uh, saw the tornado emergency uh, wording get used uh, during this event, and uh, you did. I guess it was the first time. But uh, one remark that I did want to make here is that uh, I've heard uh, in the past some people question the value of the uh, money and resources that were spent in the upgrade to dual pole of our radars back in the the 2013 time frame and without a doubt it has been very valuable it has saved lives without question it gives uh, forecasters not just at the weather service but in the private sector as well a lot of confidence in what they're saying and uh, it is quite valuable out and uh, don't doubt it. it it certainly is uh worth worth its money that we spent on it and then some
1: yeah yeah it, it's been an excellent investment i think it certainly has saved lives the fact that we can now see that debris in the storm and let people know it's on the ground enhance the wording and our warnings you know uh we were close to issuing a tornado emergency as well for some of our storms we were just kind of um you know they were in somewhat rural areas uh and we were just trying to you know coordinate internally within the office at what point do we upgrade to an emergency and and fortunately, they kind of died off before they got to some of the other, you know, bigger towns or, you know, cities within our area. But uh, this was a perfect situation for, you know, where we might see tornado emergencies the Very, you know, small, rare cases here in, in the state of South Carolina.
4: Yeah. And it's a fantastic tool to be able to say with confidence that a tornado is occurring, even though you don't have a spotter report. And that's something we didn't have before the dual polled upgrades.
3: Yeah. Excellent point. Well, John, I want to talk a little bit more about your personal experience um, with the one hour between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. You said 555, 551 a.m., pardon. You guys had four tornadoes down on the ground. Um, Scotty and I, we were awake at 551, and we were watching the radars down there as well. Um, That was, there was certainly a moment outside of your forecasting area, but when the Hampton County tornado occurred that our we just got a pit in our stomach. You know, we had that feeling that something awful was happening. Um, can you talk about the emotional toll of seeing, actually I'll throw a radar image up on the screen sure. real quick, um, if
1: this works, of seeing this
3: this debris ball uh, tumble through uh, part of your forecasting area?
1: Sure, so what we're seeing here really is that co- uh, correlation coefficient prop we were talking about. And you can see the white lines of the tornado tracks that we had, all very closely clustered, where you see like that blue ball essentially Moving up along those tracks, that's all the debris they got picked up into the air. So when we saw that, we know there's a tornado on the ground. You know, we know it's impacting, you know, homes and and potentially people's lives. And it certainly takes a toll on you. In some ways, it's so busy. In the heat of the moment, we're just trying to get the warnings out. We're trying to get reports. We're trying to update, uh, you know, our partners in emergency management and the media on what's going on. That. There's so much going on. It doesn't always settle in sometimes what's happening. It's almost after the event's over that you kind of just realize, wow, how big of an event was this? You know, what, what, what were the impacts? And for me, it really hits home when you go out there and you're actually surveying the damage after the fact. And you're, you know, face to face with the people that were impacted by these storms and uh, to see the destructions and their livelihoods change, essentially, it, it does take a toll on on forecasters. I think we're um, as an agency, I think we're doing better at realizing that these things do take toll on on forecasters. You know, it can be very stressful, um, you know, especially if you ever miss a warning. You know, nothing's worse than knowing you missed a warning and something happened. Um, but even with the best warnings, you always kind of think back, what could we have done better? You know, did we miss anything? Could we have gotten the warning out sooner? Was there other indications um, for that very reason? So, yeah, certainly these do take an emotional toll on, on the forecasters and we try to be aware of that and, and have, you know, avenues for those forecasters to, uh, you know, discuss what they're going through and, and uh, kind of get through these events together.
0: John, I know we're going to discuss um, damage surveys here in just a second. We've got some damage photos up, but that last uh, slide that, that Evan had up, uh, I forgot to ask earlier, I, I forgot that we actually had two of these tornadoes cross at the same location. I mean, that in itself, maybe we can kind of relate it to these damage surveys, but how, how was it, how difficult was it to kind of disseminate which tornado was which and all of that?
1: Yeah, it was, it, this was very difficult. This was probably the most challenging uh, storm surveys that I had to go on. I mean, we really had between all the tornadoes, it was 123 miles of tornado damage, and a lot of times our tornadoes kind of skip around a little bit. They touch down, they might lift up for you know a half mile or mile, and come back down again. And you know you're just trying to find how long was this path. These were on the ground the entire time. I've really never seen anything like that around here. You know these long track tornadoes. You know um, 37 uh, mile track for for one of them. Um, we just don't see that. So that was just remarkable. It was on the ground so long. And then the fact they were all so close to each other, and then the two of them crossed. So before we even go out, we we use our software, our AWIPS software in the office, and we essentially um, use the um, correlation coefficient. We use the velocity signatures, and we kind of draw out where we think the tornado might have tracked, and we use that as a starting point for going out on our surveys and. You know, radar did show that the two storms kind of passed real right near each other, um, but I wasn't sure if one was still on the ground when they kind of crossed tracks there. I thought maybe one lifted. Um, and we went out did our survey and it was just a complete mess in Orangeburg County. I mean, just trees and damage everywhere you can see. It was really hard to figure out what was going on. It wasn't until we went back and we pulled in satellite data, which we're able to use now, and we actually could see the damage scar uh, in the trees. Um, we used that multiple times in this event but it really helped right where it crossed. We were able to see um, there was an intersection pretty much of the damage pass and after I saw that I reached out to the emergency manager and uh, it's Billy Staley out in Orangeburg County. I said hey you know Billy could these things have crossed you know damage and I forgot what the name of the road was. He said John let me let me call around and I'll find out. And He called me back he's like yeah we have damage on on that road there so I knew you know, the tornadoes had crossed. And he said, I, I just spoke to somebody. And she said, yeah, you know, the tornado came through. And not a minute or two later, I heard another tornado pass right by on the other side. You know, it's just remarkable for that to happen. But it was a satellite imagery that gave us the first real indication. And then after that, we were able to go back on radar and really look at it and see kind of how they interacted and and draw that track. We actually extended the track after the fact. So when we're out there, it's preliminary for these very reasons. We go back, look at the data, and we try to fix those tracks and make them as accurate as possible. And that's what happened here.
4: We're gonna transition here to talk about damage surveys and all that that entails. Um, One thing I wanted to mention that just came to mind is, you know, Columbia, South Carolina is very fortunate that it has a Doppler radar located right there close by. And, you know, this, some of this, imagery that we've been looking at is just fascinating. Uh, Could you talk to us about how important it is to have a Doppler radar show these low level scans, especially when we're talking about damage, you know, picking up on debris balls, and, and also how important that is for when you're eventually going to conduct damage surveys and how that plays a role into it.
1: Usually you know, the truth is having a, a tornado occur closer to a radar is going to give you better data you're just going to see it better there's no question about that the resolution of the data is going to be better you're looking you know much you know lower in the storm closer to the ground level and of course we're going to have more reliable information but you know the radar is still a very good tool to even use at distance you know where we had a lot of our tornadoes in the Eastern Midlands, that's kind of on the outer range of our, our radar coverage. You know, we're, we're shooting up at the lowest elevation angle there, just guessing off the top of my head, probably 3,000, 3,500, maybe 4,000 feet. So this wasn't a case where we had a very good look. It wasn't super close to our radar. Um, and some of them were almost halfway between our radar and Charleston's radar. We were switching between the two. And we'll do that. We'll look at multiple radars and, and get a different look at the storm. Um, but when you have tornadoes this strong, it's you're you're probably going to see them on radar even at a distance. You no, know, the debris got lofted so high up into the atmosphere that the radar was still clearly showing what was happening. The, the times really that I think being close to the radar really helps is for those quick spin ups that are just you know um, not very deep circulations that um, spin very quickly and dissipate. I think being close to the radar for those certainly helps. When you have these large tornadoes like this, um, even at good distances from the radar, we usually have fairly good confidence in what's happening.
4: John, I wanted to ask you how this particular outbreak compares to uh, other historical outbreaks in South Carolina. I can think of at least a couple, maybe three, that were probably worse than that. Uh, like, for example, the May 15th of 2008 kind of super outbreak for South Carolina. Surely that was worse. And, and the 1995 uh, outbreak that was associated with the remains of Barrel, and maybe the eighty four uh march of 84 outbreak was worse too but in your mind how does this stack up against other tornado outbreaks in south carolina
1: yeah in terms of the sheer number i'd have to look back but i think this might be more similar to what we had back in the 80s i would say 84 was 84 frank
4: yeah 84 march of 84 it's when the windsboro was uh, kind of demolished Yeah. yeah that's
1: that's definitely one uh one of the benchmarks that we use for severe weather here in the Carolinas. for me um the 2008 is the one um that kind of stands out for my time working in the carolinas you know i've, I've worked in the wilmington office in north carolina the charleston south carolina office now here in columbia so i've had quite a bit of time in the carolinas and we've had some you know big tornadoes but in terms of true outbreaks for me it's the 2008 outbreak that's kind of sticks in my mind and seeing that event you know that event was different we had a lot more supercells that event was it looked like we were more in the planes when you saw those supercells moving through. Um, we had strong tornadoes. One of,
4: uh, you know, what? One of very few high risks that South Carolina has seen <laughs> uh, yeah. for SPC yeah, we and, were, for the 2008 we were outbreak. Yeah, when you saw the radar that
1: day, it was just incredible to say, this is happening in South Carolina. You know, it just it's something you didn't think you would see. Um, That event was very busy. I'd say one big difference, some of that was kind of spread out a little bit. These were very clustered in our area, at least, right in the eastern Midlands, over several counties got just, you know, one tornado after another. Barnwell County, which isn't a very large county um, in terms of size, had, um, trying to look how many tornadoes they had in their county, I think they had one, two, three tornadoes pass through their county um in an event, it's just really unheard of. So to me, this kind of stands out just it was all in a very short duration and all in a relatively smaller area, even though the whole state had impacts. For us though, if you look, it was just the eastern midlands that really got hit hard. So it was a lot more focused of an
2: event. You talked about government vehicles, right? I'm interested in logistics, right? So you have uh, teams that go out, obviously you can't have too many people in one vehicle, so you have multiple government vehicles, and then you have to pull staff from the offices to go do the surveys too. Um, so I imagine that that has challenges on its own. But one thing I'm I'm particular about is uh, the question is about the helicopter ride. So I hear that sled assists with helicopter rides to go overhead and look at the damage surveys from from that angle um, how, you know, what agencies are you working with on a regular basis to get these rides and and how do you interact? Is it federal state, you know, how, I mean, how does that work?
1: We're very fortunate. We have a lot of great partners that we could work with in the state and a lot of resources that we can, um, use to, to assist us. So, um, you know, during this event, SLED was able to put a helicopter up and we were able to kind of see the stuff from the air. And that certainly helps because you're on the ground, it's rural areas a lot of times. So there's just trees and um, you know, the next road over might be a couple of miles down. So what happened between those two roads, um, you just can't see that from the ground. We have drones that we can use, and that and we, we do take advantage of that. But when you have such a large area like this, being able to get up in the air and see it is really beneficial. Um, so SLED helped with this event for um, another tornado event we had. Um, uh, the South, Car- uh, South Carolina Forestry Commission was able to go fly up and take a look for us in uh, some swampy areas. You know, they have interest in terms of timber loss, so they have a purpose of being up there anyway. So they're able to go take a look for us. and They were able to confirm some damage in an area that we couldn't get to, even with a drone. So having those resources available is, is really beneficial. And like I mentioned now, the satellite data has been tremendous for... You know seeing some of these tornado tracks um that's actually how we confirmed some of the tornadoes down savannah river site for this event there's no access there it was the satellite imagery showed us a clear scar and we knew a starting and ending point um so um there's a lot more stuff you know the helicopters the drones the satellites all really make the surveying a lot easier it's still a difficult task um except for us it's really a personnel issue you know you have people that maybe work an event now you got it. people that are trained to go on surveys, at least lead a survey, go out there and, you know, in a big event like this, it might be four to six people going out, we still have to forecast from the office, we're getting phone calls and inquiries and media is calling, someone has to quality control the data we're inputting into our database, um, the um, damage assessment toolkit that a lot of you have access to someone's in the office as we're out there putting in time for all the points, quality controlling the data, so when we get back, we don't have to do that. So it takes a lot of people to do this, and sometimes that's a limiting factor. We are not be able to get out right away or get one team out. We just don't have the staffing available. Um, so it's always something we kind of have to factor in.
0: Well, John, we certainly appreciate you joining us tonight and recapping this uh, severe weather outbreak uh, that occurred in April 2020 for South Carolina, and uh, appreciate all the good information. Uh, if our followers uh, who are not really familiar with uh, the Columbia office Uh, how can they follow you all on social media and uh, what's the best way if they have a storm report to get that to you?
1: Yeah, we appreciate any reports, you know, trees down, large hail, anything like that is all really beneficial to us. So we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, uh, just NWS Columbia. Uh, You can find us on both Facebook and and Twitter using NWS Columbia. You can email us nws.columbia at noaagovernor always happy to, you know, uh, interact with the community, and and certainly always appreciate reports.
0: Well, John, we certainly appreciate it, and uh, we encourage all of our followers, if they're not already following uh, your office there on the social media platforms, to do that. So we appreciate you watching the Carolina Weather Group tonight. Stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time here on the Carolina Weather Group.